Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band. If we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, on here and it's City Limits and um, it's the second Wednesday of the month. It means it's an energy day. And we've got all the gang in today. Andy's pressing buttons again. Andy, welcome back and uh, good to much. see you. And Cheers, crook Kevin. last week, you got over it? Yeah, feeling much better, thank you. Good, good. Lovely to hear. Mark Allen's back. Mark uh, has been away, of course. We'll get back to him in a second. And uh, Megan Kimber's here. Megan. Hi. How are you? Good. Back third week, going well, going yeah. really well, yes. And I'm Kevin Healy, by the way, in case anyone isn't too sure. Um, and uh, and it's, the, as I say, the second Wednesday of the month, so we're going to have energy issues. And we're going to talk to uh, Paddy Moriarty from Monash today about a number of things. Finkel, um, this, well, certainly the, the current situation with batteries in South Australia and batteries generally because they're taking off. And Paddy has some scepticism, I think, about batteries but mm. uh, be interesting well, to hear yeah, his view on it yeah mm. well but we'll have a yarn he might have changed his mind because it's all staying everything's happening so quickly this but is there, true lots of areas there that we can talk about including electricity prices and all sorts of things so mm. we'll talk to, i also want to if we get time i want to raise with him because he's sitting out at a university of course um the, there has been a lot of talk the the universities have uh, who played a dreadful role, in my opinion, during the Howard era when he really commercialised universities and turned them into businesses. The vice-chancellors went along and they play, I think if they'd fought then, then a lot of what happened mightn't have happened. Mm. But even the vice-chancellors of the, of the so-called big eight universities uh, in Australia are now complaining about the latest cuts to university funding, so they're getting on board. But mm. Might even talk to Paddy about whether it is affecting people like him on the ground, researchers mm. and people Mm. yeah i was at uni at that time when the vsu came in and when the prices went up when they raised the hex like the bound the top boundary on the hex and i remember the university of tasmania was one of the ones where the vice chancellor actually marched in the protests against vsu so good on tassie but now yeah there's a lot of um these days it's quite different there's a lot of Mm. um a lot of cutbacks, a lot of layoffs yeah. in, at the uni in Tasmania. Well, she or he is exempt from our criticism. <laughs> um, I was at uni at the same time too, and in South Australia, of mm. all places. Our vice-chancellor was definitely on board with John Howard. So, mm. yes, yeah, a very different reaction there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And certainly here in Melbourne, Davis and company played along completely and, in fact, uh, you know, almost almost uh, cheerleaders for what Howard was doing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so it wasn't so good. Okay, now just a few things. Before we get on to Paddy at about, um, in about 20 minutes or so, um, we let's have our usual bit about the the Herald Sun. We can't go without our opening with the Herald Sun. Last week we talked, um, and um, you'll remember this, Megan, but um, mm. probably um, probably uh, Mark won't because he wasn't here. Uh, we talked about uh, 
the fact that they had a whole front page devoted to a thug bashing somebody in a at a suburban footy match. And this was really the big news of the day. And, of course, this sort of news is good because it does avoid them having to actually present any real news to fill up those spaces between the ads. And when I used to used to edit in the Murdoch Empire, in fact, I always just described my job as filling in the spaces between the ads because that's basically what you did. Because <laughs> um, the, the, the advertising department was the one that actually mattered as far as Murdoch was concerned. But I thought this week they'd done another one. They got a double-page spread of a, a, a tennis player, and like all Australian tennis players, he bombed out day one of the tournament, so he's free to go out. <laughs> now, you're going to find this hard to believe, Nick swaps racket for club, parties all night after, etc. And the two full pages of him and these young women, um, and the thought of a a twenty year old or whatever he is, twenty something, just over twenty year old, night clubbing all night with wait for it girls. <laughs> I mean, what is the world coming to? This is this is surely this is real news, isn't it? This is big time. Big I don't time. blame him, really. I mean, no, he'd, he'd, no, no. he'd left his game because he had a bad back or something. Was that right? He'd, he'd, yeah, well, yeah, he had so a hip it's or not, something. It's not he'd... as if he had a game the no, next day. No, no, that's right. This is, ye- is this yesterday or today? No, this or... was last, but it's been every day since. This was Thursday. This was the day it happened, Thursday. Mm. But then every, it, it was even yesterday morning they had more pictures. They seemed to like, enjoy the pictures of the young women who turned out to be apparently up-and-coming tennis players as well. But I mean, and whether he was going out night clubbing with, with men or girls or whatever, whatever his sexual preference was, the fact that he went out with his sexual preference all night as a 20-year-old seemed to me to be astounding news. But then yesterday, apart from another page on that one, uh, this, is a, this is one of the big news stories. Now, this really is a story, okay? Clocking in with a flourish. And there's a young woman in a purple dress sitting on the clock tower at Flemington, way up above clock tower so it's a natural shot leaning out of the clock tower at Flemington Racecourse A timely shake-up is underway at Flemington with luxury watch and jewellery retailer Kennedy I've never heard of but then I'm not into luxury watches and things. Anyone heard of Kennedy as a luxury? No, I'm no. afraid not Lots no, of nodding no. in the studio. I haven't lived I haven't lived. No, no. Replacing Hotelier Crown. Poor old Oh, it's just an awful year in a young packer. As sponsor of Oaks Day. And it goes on in, you know, it's just the usual crap. And it says the luxury brand will host a VIP marquee in Flemington's birdcage enclosure and has also been named as the official time partner of the VRC with Flemington's famous clock tower to bear the brand's name. Kennedy Executive Chairman James Kennedy said the retailer would bring plenty of glamour to the track, particularly on the race day ladies have claimed as their own. The VRC is one of the world's premier race clubs and we are incredibly proud to sign as a major partner, Mr Kennedy said. And that really is one of the great news stories of the year, isn't it? That, mm-hmm. That's why, you know, given weeks, things like May Day marches can't even get a look in in the paper because <laughs> there's that sort of news to cover. And you say in the Herald Sun is some kind of an agenda. Oh, <laughs> please. <laughs> and, 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 and Jamie Bell, the face of the new Kennedy campaign, wears Alex Perry dress and Gregory Latner headpiece, both from Meyer and a Rolex watch from Kennedy. I mean, for God's sake, if that isn't a free ad. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, no, it's not an ad. I'm sorry. That was a terrible thing to say. That was a straight news story. I'm going to have a sip of tea. Hang on a tick. Say something, someone. I brought a bit of news in. The Sydney Morning Herald. Yes. Um, are talking about corruption. In politics. Go on. And um, fewer, so Fitzgerald, who did the Fitzgerald Inquiry mm. in Queensland, yeah. 
um, that ended up in the resignation of former State Premier Joe Bjorki-Peterson yes. has gone to Canberra um, with the Australian Institute and has done a survey of politicians in um, Canberra. And the headline is, Majority of federal MPs refuse to sign up to Tony Fitzgerald's ethical standards. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Have you seen this right. one? Oh, no, I, he was interviewed yesterday morning on Radio National about oh. it. But yeah, so it, but I haven't seen it. But yeah, that's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Mm. Yeah. It is yeah. interesting. And talking about Joe Piocca Peterson, it looks like there's a bit of a problem brewing in Moreland. When Moreland Community Against the Tunnel campaigned against the proposed East West Link, they had stalls, tables in public places, handed out leaflets, had protests, and put up posters, all without asking council permission. All of that will be banned for local groups under Moreland Council's proposed new local laws to be voted on at the council meeting this coming Wednesday night, 12th of July. Those local laws are a major attack on democratic rights and hark back to the Joe Bjorka-Peterson era. $300 for the permit, by the way, and yeah. then they say you know, various charity groups, etc., will be exempt. But um, if you turn up as a political group they don't like or something, then I presume that Oh, so it's $300 to get a permit to be in a public place. There's wow. even going to be a ban on camping or leaving items in a public place, which will target the homeless. So while there is a clause that exempts the homeless, homeless people will first need to prove their situation. Wow. And they'll be harassed by council officers who will have a much bigger role under this legislation. Mm. Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance rightly points out the only solution to homelessness is public housing. So anyone who's interested in getting involved, well, we have a protest that's actually on tonight about that. So 6pm tonight in front of the council office, which is 90 Bell Street, Coburg. That's 6pm tonight if you want to protest Moreland Council's proposed undemocratic laws. So there we go. That's the, what, 6 o'clock? 6pm tonight, yes. Oh, yeah, that's Coburg Town Hall, of course, which is just down the road from Sydney Road and been Bell Street, so I think people know where it is. Who live in the area anyway, I'm sure they do. And of course, Sue is sometimes a guest here and very supportive of City Limits. Yes, and indeed, a, a parallel item to that at Moreland is the fact that um, they, they now have approved, they've got four flags flying, um, the Torres Strait Island, the Aboriginal flag, the, the invasion flag from England, and the LGBTI flag are all flying. And they say they'll keep the latter one flying until... Uh, marriage equality is achieved in Australia. Mm, uh, fair enough. But, um, but there's, the Herald Sun's picked up a, a really critical item on this one. Um, they, and they, of course, Sue becomes the villain as usual. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we expect that. Because on, on, on December 1, which is the West Papuan National Day, Independence Day, they, they've agreed to fly the, um, the Morning Star flag for the West Papuans. And uh, they've got to take one of the other flags down and it's suggested that the LGBTI flag might come down for the day, for one day. And the Herald Sun makes this a completely wonderful story. Um, mm. Council flag flap. Uh, now, I would have thought you should take the other one down, the invasion flag. Well, that's what I'd have thought yeah, too, That's yeah. the one that the others should stay up. But yeah. that, And they might decide to do that anyway. Uh, but then they, they did point out, a, I think this is a critical part of the story, um, last month, councils came under fire for meddling in controversial issues such as flying political flags, promoting Indigenous treaties and raising old ethnic disputes. At the time, Evan Mulholland, now this is one of the great thinkers of this world, a free market think tank, the 
think tank is certainly a misnomer, the Institute of Public Affairs said councillors were elected to fix local roads and collect rubbish. Councillors have no jurisdiction to comment on international affairs. They should do that in their own time as private citizens rather than spending our money, he said. And that's not a bad point. But thankfully, in the council's advertised page in the local rag this week, uh, the mayor makes the point that Moreland is one community proudly diverse and it costs nothing to make such an important gesture on an issue that affects so many. Cost nothing. So where did, what's he complaining about? There's a lot of money in flags, Kevin. There's a lot of, lot of upfront cash you've got to pay to get a decent flag nowadays. Well, I, got I had ex- to remortgage my house to get my flag. <laughs> I got excited by flags on the front page of the Fin Review last Wednesday. I bought it on the way home from here. Opened it up and the front page headline was Red Flag Over East Coast Power. And I thought, my God, the revolution's coming some part of Australia. <laughs> Isn't this wonderful? <laughs> I, I was so excited. I really was excited. And then I found it was sort of red flag in terms of a real problem for them because they've got to pay for electricity and prices are going up. And, ah. Yeah. yeah, so... Of course, red flag can as, mean two very different yeah. things. Can't have thought of that. It wasn't as both, good as... Both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, maybe. so it wasn't quite as good as I thought. No. But, Mark, now you're back and yes. I know you have certain subjects you, you're interested in and one you're certainly not interested in in its population no, as well. No, no interest in that at all, no. Yesterday, <laughs> yesterday was World Population Day, it as was. far as I know. It was. Um, any, oh, no, you probably don't want to comment. Do you want to comment on it at all? Obviously, on World Population Day, the emphasis is on the fact that the best way to tackle population at a global level is through proactive foreign aid um, that empowers people um, so when you provide access to health care, contraception, family planning, basically raise people out of poverty, and I don't mean that in the neoliberal way of getting people into factories to make crap for consumers of the West, but I mean working, partnering with people in other countries to raise them out of poverty, then populations naturally start to stabilise, and that's a non-coercive way of, of, of dealing with the issue of population. And it's a very, very important issue. And um, obviously our government um, has cut the foreign aid budget massively. So we really need to put pressure on increasing foreign aid, but not just increasing foreign aid, but changing the nature of foreign aid so that it is actually proactive and actually helps people on the ground so there isn't an agenda behind foreign aid that um, encourages neoliberalism and all that kind of thing. So that's what I'd say on the, on the global population issue, that it really is getting getting back to working and partnering with countries. The other week we had on a um, woman from Melbourne, um, Rachel... Rachel Carey. Rachel Carey. Yes. Uh, talking about growing you know, the food and the loss of market gardens on the fringe, yes. etc. This new development at Wyndham Bale has been announced again recently, and there's another company announcing even a bigger one, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this all seems to be encroaching. It's encroaching on the grasslands that yes. are pretty, pretty, pretty rare and um, ecologically fragile and taking the last of those. But also it's moving closer and closer to areas where we are growing our food, isn't it, all this stuff? I mean, Absolutely, yeah. So because Melbourne's population growth is growing at the speed that it is, we're not able to achieve the, the sustainable planning outcomes that you might get if it was growing at a slower rate. Because basically, in order to, to grow sustainably, we really need to be looking at uh, brownfield regeneration, um, increasing densities in the middle suburbs in a way that encourages more public housing, so it brings more people in, but without destroying the character of those suburbs. And maybe even building some new towns along the existing railway lines going out of Melbourne. But these things take time. At the moment, because of the pressure of rapid population growth, you get a lot of fast-paced, car-dependent 
urban sprawl, which is eating into uh, the food bowl and the grasslands. Mm. So again, when we look at population growth in an Australian context, we have to take it out of the neoliberal paradigm and, mm. and look at it from that global perspective and understand that the best way of dealing with population growth is through proactive foreign aid. That helps more people. And that in terms of here in Australia, our population growth needs to be in sync with public transport infrastructure investments and in sync with proper decent sustainable outcomes and that means freeing up brownfield sites wasteland within the cities for development and not allowing developers to hold onto them yep so basically it's changing the paradigm about the way we approach population growth obviously we positively discriminate in favor of refugees as well and we invest more in proactive foreign aid and we ensure that population growth is in sync with public housing development and public transport infrastructure everyone in the world benefits and we get the socially and environmentally sustainable outcomes that we need as we transition to a low carbon economy and of course if people don't uh, keep having wars that create refugees in the first place oh exactly well yeah exactly so it all runs that's part of the globalization it it, it is and it all interconnects everything interconnects it's basically we've just got a completely re-examine the way we approach the world in, mm. on all levels because mm. we're doing everything wrong. You know? mm. And especially like in regards to food security, I'm fascinated by planning sort of regulations that really limit and restrict people in their abilities to be connected to the food yes. that they eat. Like there's so many possibilities for urban food gardens. Absolutely. And they're just never sort of... Um, it seems like quite prohibitive, a lot of the regulations, it's even like verges and yeah. things like that, spaces which could be growing food for people, mm. uh, urban farms or, you know, Ceres is right. great, of course. Yes, Ceres is wonderful. We need more of those. Yeah, our street where I live had a we, – we put our own – it's in a very urban area and, like, uh, we put our own – um, box planter box and the council said if it's not moved we'll move really it. yeah really mm-hmm. that's um that's mm-hmm. sad to hear well, mm-hmm. apart yeah. from rachel Kerry the other week we are planning to have pam morgan on in the next few weeks who, yes. who went to cuba and set up some of those gardens in oh, that would be fascinating yeah. um, yes. so she'll be coming and she's she's got a magnificent garden up there in coburg herself of a vegetable yes. garden so we're going to talk to, to her and about this very yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and hopefully we'll get david holmgren on too um oh. yes and he's been doing a lot on the retro suburbia about how we can actually retrofit the middle suburbs mm-hmm. with all those amazing gardens mm. yes. and how that can become part of our food security as well. Yep. So this is another reason why we have to be somewhat wary of when we increase densities, uh, whether or not we're actually mm. building on our capacity to provide permaculture. Mm. So mm. there is space to increase densities, but yeah. if we leave it to the free market, we're not going to get the outcomes that we need. So Absolutely. that's why there has to be, it has to be from a public housing perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And notice the uh, while you're talking about the global perspective, the National Australia Bank's looking at the regional perspective, and they say that the bank should be looking much more at financing regional projects and regional infrastructure to allow regional development in Australia. And uh, and they talk about mildew and eating this and various places and eating that, and they're quite happy to go and invest, uh, which is very good of them, isn't it? Um, oh, it's very decent in, in roads and, and various infrastructures out there <laughs> to make life a lot better for everybody. So this yes. seems like a good idea, Mark. To be fair, there is some good in encouraging more people to live in the regions and help support regional towns, but it's certainly not a magic bullet solution in terms of dealing with rapid population growth in Melbourne and Sydney. 
if we were to just offset five years' worth of Melbourne's growth to the three main regional centres of Victoria, they'd have to double in size just within five years. Well, even the city of Wyndham, which covers that Werribee area, um, the, it's got it's the fastest-growing Victoria municipality. Um, just picking up your argument, it gets two thirty new residents every week, 87 babies born every week. I'm not sure it's exactly 87 every week. But <laughs> I'm sure there's someone yeah, counting. Yeah, that's right. It was going to be a bit... Careful to do that one now. 13,896 more primary and 12,845 more secondary school students in the next 10 years. A thousand new classrooms needed. Um, they'll need 180 childcare centres, 165 schools, 25 hospitals and day clinics, 20 shopping centres. I mean, this is just getting out of hand. It's getting it? out of hand. And, and this, this, is, this is forever. When you have population growth under neoliberalism, there's no aim towards levelling out. There's no aim towards creating a stable outcome it's this growth has to be continual so when when you have that number of schools built which is unlikely but if that ever happens you'll have to build more that we will never have enough density it will always have to find ways of becoming more and more dense because it's that growth at all costs model and that's why population has to be decoupled from neoliberalism yeah, that's that's very much the case. And, of course, there's an Echo Cities or a, whatever it's called, a, a conference starting in Melbourne today, a world, a world city. Yeah. If you've got a, a bit world. of cash, I'll go along. It's mm-hmm. just yeah. I looked at the price and it's like, I don't think I can afford that. It's, uh, I think it's for the for the elite. But Brendan Gleeson, who is professor at, um, at Melbourne in urban studies, Brendan um, was on this program years ago. He was up at Queensland somewhere at the time, one of the unis up there. Um, there will be nuts and bolts of the conference topics, including how to create building materials with zero emissions, how to maintain urban food production in a city such as metropolitan Melbourne that is spreading into our paddocks and farmlands, the stuff we just talked about. Um, but it's you know, what he says there is all very general, unfortunately. There's nothing really specific as to what they're going to do. But uh, It's all just words. I, was... I think this, conferences like this are important and it's good to talk <coughs> about them. But there's a, there's, we have a long way to go before all of these good ideas actually gets translated into, into proper mm. policy on the ground. Mm. And we're losing. Mm. Every day we are losing food belt. Every day we're losing grassland. So if we take 10 years to, to allow this to filter into policy, it's going to be too late. And so. it's how you get it out there because we've talked for ages. We've talked many times on this program that there's a lot of good work being done. The Urban and the uh, Ohuri, the Australian Housing and Urban Research um, what is it called? Ohuri Institute, um, and um, and the various planning departments and geographic geography departments at the unis, etc., are coming out with some pretty good stuff all yeah, over the place. But absolutely. it's not getting out. It's, exactly, it's, yeah. it's stuck. It's stuck in the ivory tower. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and and it's interesting this week that Kate Shaw's material. Um, on um, she, you know, research she's done, in, and particularly looking at this sell-off of public housing that's going on, mm. uh, she's she's got into the news a bit on that. From she's from Melbourne, of course, and Kate was one of the original founders of the People's Committee for Melbourne that started this program. Mm. Um, that and she's been in the news a bit and getting out. And she made the point that when she wrote the paper with her with her masters with a master's student, it was um, that they thought it would just get published in some in-house, you know, mm. in-house journal of some sort. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's good that it's come out because, I guess, because of what the government's doing, etc. But occasionally those things do get out and you get some good research coming up. But mm. really, mm. 
Mm, well, that's right. There's yeah. a divide between the sort of the, the structures that regulate and legislate around how mm. things can happen in the cities, and then the people who actually want to do things. Mm. So if you're if you're sort of proactive and you want to have a different sort of environment, <clears throat> but you get um, obstructed by policies or bureaucracies and things like that, then it can be discouraging. You can't, you know, anecdotally, this example on our street where we put a planter box Mm. in, at the same time, the the local council is uh, like put in an application for funding to, mm. to have bo- planter boxes on the street. Mm. So it's kind of, it's a mad, it's kind of a madness <laughs> mm, that yeah. they're taking away the box we made because it wasn't in alignment with their planning regulations and restrictions, but at the same time they're applying for a mm. grant to turn that street into a more friendly, person-friendly wow. street. Isn't so that that's like a great example of the way that this system kind of like choose up ideas. Yeah, a north yeah. boxing match. Look, <laughs> 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 well, let's get Paddy Garrett, no, not Paddy Garrett, Paddy Moriarty on the line and, um, and have some sense on this program. Okay, and on the line, Paddy Moriarty, uh, who goes on the title Professor Moriarty and thrives on it, um, out at Monash. And Paddy, um, um, on a, well, let's start on a positive note and then on a perhaps not so positive note. Um, a couple of headlines in the last week or so that the clean energy sector is having a, a record growth year, which is good news. And there was an item last week, though, that shows that sea levels are rising 50% faster than people had thought. That was a study, international study, and was published in Nature Climate Change. Um, two perhaps related but contradictory things there, Patrick. Yeah, um, look, I think... The main way in which we're going. By the to way, I'll just before we go on, Patty, I'll just let you know we've got um, Megan and uh, Mark in the studio with us as well today, so oh, you'll pick good. them up. Yeah. G'day, Megan. G'day, Mark. Hey. Um, yes. Look, uh, if there's a, a matter of timing as well, um, so I I think in the first instance, the most effective way of cutting greenhouse gases fast is to reduce our energy use. And that, or, or especially reducing our 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 over fossil fuel energy use, and of course, what that means um, is that there will then be spare capacity in um, in fossil fuel power stations and so on, and that will inevitably slow down the rate of growth of renewable energy. Um, the reason why we do that is because energy efficiency and and the conservation measures are much uh, less costly per kilogram of carbon dioxide avoided than uh, investment in, in renewable energy or nuclear or anything else, right, or carbon capture and storage. And I think that's going to dawn on people. Also, the, as I say, the time frame for it is faster. Um, ramping up renewable energy is most effective when you're ramping up energy use overall, right, which is not the way, <laughs> which is not the way to go. In fact, changing to any new energy source is easiest uh, when energy growth is, is occurring. So um, we need to move to 100% renewable energy, but we're not going to do it faster, I don't think, because of that, because we're going to need to cut back on energy use, especially fossil fuel energy use. Mm. Uh, but, um, of course, well, on that point, um, with renewables, the, the current situation, say, South Australia with these this um, proposal to put in all these batteries, etc. Oh, yeah. um, the, the doubters are saying, well, it still won't do much anyway. It'll only, you know, raise the, the the capacity slightly. Therefore, therefore, should we not proceed, or should we proceed, Patrick? Tricky question. Yeah, I mean, um, 
in any new sort of innovative thing, you you have to take some risks and then maybe even increase costs, right? I mean, this is partly an experiment as well. And for that reason, I think it's, you know, it's probably worthwhile going ahead. Uh, whether it's the future or not, I, I don't know. Um, the best form of um, energy storage, of course, is pump water storage, but you can only... There are, the number of suitable sites that are pretty limited worldwide and only takes a few percent of the... Um, um, uh, a few percent of, of electrical energy is stored that way. You know what you do at um, when uh, demand is um, is low. You, you you pump water up to a uh, to a high level reservoir and uh, use it at uh, at peak load times later on, right? But you do have maybe you can get eighty percent round uh, efficiency, but um, you still lose some, of course. What you're basically saying is that a whole scale transition towards renewables is not necessarily the best way to go at this stage and that we should be looking more at saving energy and energy efficiency and that yeah well, well of course if you save because we'll actually cut back on on fossil fuels the actual percentage of renewable energy in our energy system will, will rise yes right? by default yeah 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 but yeah by default which of course will bring its own problems in the in the electric grid right and um Therefore, um, you know, storage would be needed. It's a bit different in some countries like in, in say, uh, sub-Saharan Africa where, in fact, um, electricity use is very low. Uh, there, places like that um, would need to increase their, electric, their electrical energy output in absolute terms, right? Mm. Um, but in, in the OECD countries, especially in the high energy countries like Australia, um, there's enormous scope for energy efficiency conservation, um, which I think... Some of these will, will, in fact, have negative costs. Mm. And um, the, the problem, though, is that a lot of the new housing that's being built at the moment, it, it's not really, even though they have this star rating, it's not really being built to the standard necessary for transitioning to a very... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. They, it's a very interesting um, paper I saw in England. They had a, a row of terrace houses, and these were all identical. I think there were 14 of them, of, of, no, seven of them, I think. And they all had uh, what they call solar rooms there, you know. So they were, um, the idea was that they were to, were to be energy efficient. And they found that there was a factor of 14 in energy use between these identical houses, depending upon the actions of the occupants. Oh, interesting. So there's enormous yeah. room for flexibility there. It's a matter of opening and shutting, uh, opening and shutting doors, of pulling down shades and so on, you know, yeah, of, yeah. of moving to different rooms. Well, pulling plugs out when you're not using the yeah, system. Yeah, it's... it's um, you know, it's it's a bit of a misnomer. This this passive solar energy. I mean, there's nothing more more passive than just putting on an air conditioner and leaving it at that. This calls for the active um, active participation of the occupant, uh, the so-called mm. passive energy. So we've really got the names mixed up there. That's that's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, Paddy, on that point, um, the with this um, with all the news about various rivals. Uh, competing to put batteries in South Australia, etc. There's been more and more news coming out and more and more uh, speculation that prices are going down, that it's becoming cheaper, it's becoming more efficient, etc. Uh, are you are you still sceptical about that, or do you see that happening? That it's you know increasingly we're going to have batteries that can do what we we hope it can do. I just don't know. I remember the, there was a um, I think President Bush the second one i think had this partnership for um new generation vehicles and they had battery targets and that sort of thing none of them were, were actually met right I, I, there will be uh, efficiency improvements 
whether there'll be the breakthroughs I want, I don't know. You know, in other words, a step function in in cost reduction and um, you know uh, energy uh, density and so on. Um, I don't know. Some some people think that there may be uh, problems with getting the uh, lithium we need. Uh, if if in fact, say, uh, the world of vehicles moved to lithium batteries, plus there was a whole lot of our um, you know um, other energy was stored that way as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, whether batteries, um, I mean, look, look, I think that uh, plug-in electric vehicles, um, I think, are probably the best option at present, um, mainly because of the simple uh, idea that the average vehicle only travels, say, 30 kilometres a day, and if you can provide for that and just have a petrol backup just so that people have that psychological insurance then, in fact, you may not ever have to use it very much at all, but, and, and you can travel with a small battery pack, right? If you have to... I mean, it, 20 or 30 years ago, they were looking at trying to provide 500 kilometres of range with batteries. What that means is you're spending all your money and most of your energy carting around heavy batteries. Mm. Mm. Which are probably becoming lighter as well as these developments well, take well, place. Well, lithium, of course, is the lightest yeah, metal, and yeah, that's the idea why they're putting yeah, that, yeah, yeah. rather but, than lead, which is one of the heavier ones. <laughs> yeah, just on that, um, I'll come back to this this item later, because we've talked before, Paddy, about hydrogen cars. Yes, in fact, um, that's what I've been doing this morning. Oh, well, very good, because they've got... Um, in California now, in fact, they're using them. Or well, there's there's a certain it's the only state, but in America, they're actually using hydrogen cars, selling them, and and uh, they've got refilling stations. But just your point Very about few. how few yeah, well, how far your um, your electric car can go. A, a version of the Clarity, which is a which is a um, hydrogen car powered by batteries, goes just eighty miles. This is American on a single charge. By comparison, the Clarity FC, the fuel cell version, can go three sixty six miles on a full tank. That's a big difference. That's yeah, the hydrogen um, one. Several things here. Uh, for a start, fuel cells are still very expensive. Uh, far more expensive than. Um, um, you know, internal combustion engines or or, or especially electric motors, uh, direct electric motors. Secondly, hydrogen storage in in um, small vehicles is a real problem. Um, you have to have, given given the volume restrictions, you have to have very high pressures, uh, similar, well, often um, maybe even twice as high as the pressures that, say, tradesmen use for, um, you know, the, the gas bottles and so on. And um, so... You know, this there are safety considerations with this as well as um, mm. as cost and so on. So, um, look, I don't think I don't think um, uh, hydrogen powered vehicles for cars is going to go anywhere. There was a big fuss ten, twenty years ago, and can, uh, what's his name, Arnie Schwarzenegger, was going to build a hydrogen highway. It never happened. And I've been trying to find out how many hydrogen cars there are in the world, but it's only a handful. There's 10 and 20 in each country, whereas um, electric cars do look like they, they're getting somewhere. I mean, they've been around a long time. Well, they've been around over 100 years, but um, a third of all cars sold in Norway at present are electric. And um, so uh, they haven't made much of a difference yet, but I think that's probably... I think electric cars, I mean, from an energy efficiency point of view, uh, hydrogen vehicles at present make make no sense at all, right? Mm. Um, if you have electricity, use it directly rather than trying to um, 
use electricity to produce hydrogen and, and, and then use the hydrogen to produce electricity in cars, right? Just yeah, it does, by the way, your point about the cost of filling, this is American dollars, but $75 to fill your tank, and they do point out that it's very expensive, much more expensive than other well, fuels. Well, well, that's the trouble. When you've only got, it's the usual chicken and, and, and the egg problem, there are no refuelling stations if you don't have hydrogen vehicles, and they won't build hydrogen vehicles unless they're refuelling stations. But... Um, there's this um, interesting discussion as to whether you should generate the hydrogen at the station itself to avoid having to cart it in small loads because carting it small truckloads of hydrogen around is going to increase the costs and lower the, the energy efficiency even further. Hmm. So, um, and is there still danger involved I mean, with hydrogen? I mean, at one stage it used to be argued that it, it can explode and that takes a bit of a problem. That's Well, you know, yeah, I mean, there's... It's more than a bit of a problem of explosion, you're in it. Yeah, there, there's sort of dangers with internal, with um, petrol tanks as well. Uh, hydrogen, of course, burns... Um, well, carbon burns a lot of radiant energy. Um, hydrogen flames tend to go straight up, right? So... Um, yeah, look, I think there's pluses and minuses there, the same with, with battery vehicles, I guess. Uh, look, hydrogen is probably more useful where there are no space limitations, um, for instance, on uh, freight ships um, and maybe uh, long-distance trucks and, and trains. I think if, if hydrogen is going to be introduced in transport, that's where it'll be in first, rather than there's a whole lot of... Most of the discussion is about cars, but I think it's, it's a waste of time. Mm. I agree. I would have thought the emphasis um, really should be on public transport because well, well um, buses as well. Yeah, anywhere yeah. where the where the volume isn't 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 a, a, such a problem as it is with cars, especially mm. if you're trying to downsize cars. Absolutely, because when we also look at the nature of the climate emergency, and and it is obviously very very serious, we don't really have the time to transition to electric cars or hydrogen cars or to no. wait for this technology to come on board. We've got to sort of act quickly, and I suppose, therefore, we should just... I, I would have thought maybe at this stage the priority should be on increasing public transport as much as possible and encouraging other ways other than driving so that as the people's cars start to run down, they have other options rather than trying to create a new generation of cars at a time when we've got to get emissions pretty much to beyond zero emissions. Yeah, well, well, what what this means for uh, from uh, for transport, from a fundamental point of view, the first thing you do is have to re- replace the idea of mo- mobility with the idea of access, mm. right? Mm. Uh, in other words, at one stage, you know, um, the number of vehicle kilometres per capita was seen as a mark of progress. Maybe that, that'll change. Interestingly enough, this idea, although it never took off, of um, telecommuting and teleeducation and telemedicine and tele this and that. Um, at least, I mean, it, it hasn't got as far, but what it did at least was question mobility and sort of saw it as old-fashioned, right? So I think if we can... What access means, of course, is um, what what we want is, rather than mobility, is access to out-of-house act- activities, workplaces, um, shops, whatever else. And therefore, you need to arrange these so that... Um, uh, so that these are close by and can be accessed by, well, especially uh, non-motorised means in cities, because so many of the trips are under two or three kilometres, mm. and um, and as you say, public transport as well. Mm. Um, you were saying before that, um, and this comes back to the, what we we're just talking about, reducing consumption. Um, who who are the biggest energy users? Is it domestic or is it commercial? And how can consumption be reduced effectively? Um, yeah, uh, well, 
energy, the energy sector is traditionally considered our, um, you know, the biggest ones are industry mm. uh, buildings, which is domestic plus commercial mm. and, uh, and transport. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, you know, uh, things like uh, agriculture and so on. But uh, domestic is a big one. And, of mm. course, domestic plus private transport are the two areas that under, are under the direct control of the average consumer, right? Mm. Um, because they get directly charged for those. Mm-hmm. In other words, the energy they use comes to them, whereas energy for street lighting or for um, palm and house is just pretty... <laughs> we mm-hmm. can't affect that very much, as it were. Because mm. there's uh, a lot of um, vested interests commercially to, for consumption to continue to go up. Obviously, oh, yeah. yeah, energy companies make more money if we use more energy. So, yeah, well, And car uh, companies make more money if we buy more cars. So. Well, as I said before, with the, with the way bills are structured, in other words, with very high fixed costs and mm. pretty low... Um, Usage costs. Uh, user costs. What yeah. this means is that uh, people who don't consume a lot of energy like me, mm. like uh, they verbally they praise you, but under the table they're actually kicking you in the shins. Yeah, it's a, dis- it's a disincentive. Yeah, yeah. I, my fixed costs used to always be much, much yeah. higher than my yeah. usage yeah. costs. Yeah. Well, I hope it still yeah. is. Isn't it? Well, I've just <laughs> well, moved. I don't oh. know what my bills are now. <laughs> like, we, can put it, we can guarantee you that your, your service costs will still be much higher. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, that goes back, of course, Paddy, to when we used to talk about this at the time when they were privatising um, gas and electricity assets, um, that the interest of the company was purely to make money and sell more and more. So the idea that they'd want to conserve um, was anathema, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, even even government-owned companies have uh, would have the same problem. You know, we need a different um, approach to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the end we're going to have to move to um, some sort of carbon pricing. Or the interesting idea they they tried they were they at least um, examined in Britain was to have a carbon ration card, uh, sort of like a petrol rationing during the Second World War, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea is that each um, a responsible adult, and there was a bit of talk about how that would be <laughs> yes. decided. The word would "responsible" actually, does, it gives yeah, a, it would actually get, would act, and this has equity considerations. Would actually get a carbon ration, which they could then sell if they wanted to, and then when they uh, sell to electricity companies and gas companies or major industries and so on, and then when they uh, when they paid for electricity or gas, of course, it'd be higher than before, but they would have got that money ahead. So this would mean that. Um, it would there would be a re, a redistribution of a partial redistribution of wealth as well. Uh, some have thought of applying this internationally as well, with some of the money going back to uh, low consumption companies uh, countries. Mm. Interesting idea. Mm. So it's really carbon pricing at the individual level rather than yeah, the company yeah, level, yeah. really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So um, look, that'll have to come in. Um, well, a, a World Bank study, uh, I think it was in 2015 came up with a figure of um, $6 trillion subsidies to fossil fuels. A lot of this was for um, its carbon dioxide emissions and even for, for traffic accidents, which, which, of course, would occur with any fuel. But it was still, um, for a World Bank study, that was pretty um, amazing. It's a big figure. Mm. Well, this morning's news was talking about a government policy paper that's come out that talks about putting a carbon price on cars and uh, vehicle emissions, and it took the minister about two minutes to come on and say it would never happen. Um, but um, you know, that... that that um, 
But the I and and again the again the motor industry came out and said this would put up the price of cars and hurt consumers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they were what they were really saying was people would continue to use dirty cars as they couldn't afford the new clean cars. So we must continue to use the new dirty cars. I think that's what they were really saying. No, well, if there was carbon pricing, of course, it'd mean that uh, fuel inefficient cars would be paying more, right? Um, well, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, Look, I think it's going to have to come in. Uh, admittedly, there are... It depends how you do it. Admittedly, there are equity considerations in a, in a high-vehicle-owning country like Australia, but in most of the world, of course, when they've got, say, in, in a tropical Africa where they've got fewer than five cars per thousand, uh, equity would be served by, by having high fuel prices. Yeah. <laughs> high well, fuel prices. If, if we had decent town planning around mm. public transport on the fringe, you know, the, the, the need to drive would greatly reduce. And we could live in a society where people can hire a car for a day or two or whenever they need one and it can be part of a, a mixed approach to transport that's surely the kind of paradigm we've got to be moving towards i mean what what worries me as a planner is that we're still building car dependent suburbia and then you're significantly disadvantaged if you can't afford exactly. to have a car when the whole planning arrangements benefit those with cars and exactly. are designed for those with cars. You have a yeah. kind of a class system you coming do. into place. You do. Where if you can't afford the fuel or the That's maintenance right. or whatever. Or you have, an, or you have the, you know, we have to concede, you, you've got to use an old car that's going to be much more polluting because mm-hmm. you can't afford anything else. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, it's certainly true that in the outer areas, um, the actual amount of money people spend on transport is much higher than it is in the inner areas, right? Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, look, what we've basically got to start doing from a town planning point of view is, is uh, de- designing cities, a- as it were, for people rather than, rather than for vehicles, right? Yes. Well, we've got to make places so, so that people develop a, a, a sort of an attachment to the local area mm. uh, rather than some place to get out of fast. You know? That's right. But we've been saying that now for 10 years. I mean, this, this was, you know, my first lesson in town planning when I was at uni. And, you know, you talk to... Professor Wiseman from Melbourne University, you talk to Professor Buxton from RMIT, they're all saying it, but yet it's not happening. And that's mm. the problem. It's not happening. Being translated into policy. It's not being mm. translated into policy because the powers that be want the status quo to remain. And it's how do we how do we break through that in well, such a short sort of amount of time? Happen already, um, insofar as uh, in a number of Western countries and cities, uh, per capita travel by uh, cars is falling. Yes. Yeah. And so, and in fact, in in the UK and I think New South Wales, the number of young men going for licences is falling. The percentage mm. of young men, well, eighteen plus, who are actually applying for licences yeah, is falling that's, that's as a percentage good. of that age cohort, right? Definitely. So definitely. it does appear to be some sort of change is, is occurring. Abroad, well, maybe so we've certainly, just reached yeah. saturation, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Paddy, before we close, I want to take you to a totally different area we talked about earlier in the program. Um, the, the, even the, um, the vice-chancellors of universities that went along with Howard and played the role as universities were commercialised are now screaming about the latest cuts to funding and saying they can't possibly go on. Um, with the with the cuts um, in your capacity as an academic out there, are, are you feeling all that? I mean, what's the impact been on on people like you or on your students, etc.? Well, since I'm an adjunct associate professor, I'm, I'm not paid, so, <laughs> so it's the old age yeah. pension for me at present. <laughs> yeah, look, when I went through uni, I mean, my I and my five brothers and sisters all went through Melbourne Uni, did did at least two degrees each on. Um, full Commonwealth scholarships with living allowances because we lived in um, 
you know, more than 20 kilometres from Melbourne or something, right? So we did very well out of it, uh, the education system then. Uh, yeah, look, it's tough for, for kids these days. And if, the thing is with universities, of course, is that salaries are such a high percentage of their total cost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also there are so many people going... The, number, the percentage of the age co- cohort going to universities these days is so much higher, right? Mm-hmm. And it's more expensive than, um, than teaching at the, at the secondary school. You know, when people left with the old grade eight merit and then did courses, you know, various courses afterwards, that was sort of a pretty cheap system, really. <laughs> yeah. Now they have a degree in media studies, and mm. I don't know if it teaches them much more, but uh, anyhow, that's uh, that's the modern thing. And of course, they, the, they went along with the uh, with Howard's thing that they they become virtually businesses rather than tertiary education. Well, well, that's happening, unfortunately. Yes, there is a corporatisation of, of you know, universities. Yeah, uh, and this critical role, I think, is being downplayed. Certainly. Mm. We got a when we talked about it. We said earlier we'd talk about this, and um, we got a question from a listener uh, saying, "Asking Paddy, have you heard of local medical students um, having to cede their places to international students because they get more dollars out of them? Have you heard of that? Or probably could be happening." No, in other I haven't. Areas. I'm not on a campus that has a medical faculty. Um, I'm at Caulfield rather than uh, Clayton. Um, I should imagine. It, <laughs> From a statistical point of view, this is happening, I suppose, yeah. Mm. Um, but I don't know about individual cases or anything. But certainly we're very reliant on... Um, well, did you know that Australia has almost half a million international students? Yeah. It's, extraordinary well, it's, number. It's so an it's, extraordinary it's number. The, yeah. It's one of our biggest um, export commodities, mm. isn't it? Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, yeah. Talk, they talk about them in terms of commodities, and uh, you know, they're, not, they're not actually people. They're just you know, little, little sources of money. <laughs> yeah, well, it's partly because, well, um, I've, it's, a, it's our educational standards. It's also the fact that we're an English-speaking country and they want to learn English and so on. So, mm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I, I can't see how things can get easier for universities. And then, of course, the vice-chancellors try to balance the books and they've got to sack staff, and that doesn't make the staff happy and so on and so on. You know, it's, uh, Yeah, I think we're in yeah. for tough times. And, there's, of course, there's, there's fewer and fewer staff now on, on tenure, really, aren't there? Well, well, this is what's happening. Um, in, in America, uh, a number of adjunct uh, faculty uh, were actually had a hunger strike outside the uh, the, the vice well, vice chancellors as or the, the presidents as they call it their office right because they're really like uh, sort of itinerant fruit pickers right they go around from university to university contracting to teach a subject you know for four or five thousand they've got no rights at all and it's mm. you know it's no future for them really and um, so there's a polarisation in the in the academic profession as well as in other areas you know. Mm. Uh, you know, as you know, we have our mega star singers and others singing singing in the pubs for free and so on and so on. You know, yeah, that's well, they, that's another area of exploitation. <laughs> I won't go into the, no, the, no, the musicians no. musicians around the around the place getting exploited madly. That's exactly right. No, what, no we've what, got Spotify now. No, I'm joking. What, <laughs> what's the what's the impact on staff morale then, Paddy? Of all that, I mean, it must be pretty ordinary. Yeah, I, I guess it varies from department to department. You know, um, um, well, you see. I'm in I'm in uh, in the design department. We use an enormous number of part-time lecturers, but the thing is that uh, designers, a lot of them, don't mind being part-time a bit because they're trying to do work outside as well, right? So in some areas it would suit, but if you've got an arts degree or something, that's uh, it's <laughs> you know I would say in English it's very hard to find outside work, right? So mm. it affects some departments more than others, of course. Mm. Yeah. yeah. 
All right, another subject. We ran out of time, unfortunately, so we'll have to uh, move on. But, Paddy, thanks for your time today, and thanks for your donation to Radiothon, by the way. I'm richer pleased to go that. <laughs> oh, yes, thank you for that, yes. <laughs> Paddy, Paddy found out after I dobbed him in. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't find him that day, so he, uh, he, yeah. de- he discovered he'd given $150. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Warren, Warren, Warren Buffett, yeah. Okay, talk to you all again. Thanks. All. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye. Thanks, Paddy. Thanks a lot. It's Paddy Moriarty there from Monash and um, always good value. But, um, Definitely, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Next week's housing will have the normal housing day, but I was hoping we'll certainly have a discussion next week about this proposal to sell off all these public housing areas. And we will try and get Kate Shaw on, actually, because she's been doing some research in it. That would be great. And, yeah. So who's, who's going to say goodbye this week and thank Andy? Someone. Well, it's my first day back, so mm. I'll say goodbye to Andy and thank you again for no being a great panelist and great to meet you, Meg. Great and to meet you, Mark. It's been great, and thank you, Kevin. Oh, and we're oh, going to go out on a song? Is we are. Right? We're going to go out on a song from the new Shock Octopus EP called Rome in Silence, and the song is Fantasia. <laughs> Turn the